Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long distance besties truly everywhere. She's Ann Friedman. She is Amina So. They are the authors of the book <laughs> Big Friendship. <laughs> That is like an amazing way to announce that pre-orders are open for our book as of this week. So yeah, big week for us really, like showing people the cover of our book, which feels like, you know, like that first baby photo home from the hospital. I'm like, look at her. Isn't she beautiful? (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's like the baby is swaddled. Um, We have to say though, you know, that part of why the baby is so gorgeous is because it was designed by our pal, Elizabeth Spiridakis Olsen. And it's gorgeous. We love it. Like, truly, our number one goal was just like, we want... Okay, not our number one goal. On our list of desired outcomes for this book was having a cover that we truly loved because we're going to look at this all the time. And I think it is safe to say we are obsessed with this cover. I'm so happy that on aesthetic level, I'm happy with it. And on a words level, I'm really proud of it. I know. I, you and I you and I have talked a lot about our emotional journey of writing a book. The, the feelings we're all feeling, we're both feeling since we turned it in and like basically signed off on it. And yeah, that feeling of um, being able to get a little distance on it and read it and feel proud of it is something that I, um, that I experienced for the first time pretty recently. I mean, I am like perpetually, (laughs) I mean, well, this is a really interesting thing about collaborating, right? Which is to say that like when I'm working by myself, I can be really hard on myself and be like, this is trash garbage. And it's like motivation for me to do it better. And I think like working with you and it's a collaboration, I that same feeling I have is actually like really mean because then I'm talking about your work too. You know what I mean? Like the mechanisms I have for oh, assessing. I know, Anne. I know. <laughs> I know. And also I just want to apologize to you for like, you know, my own process of thinking that our book was really bad in order to like keep working on it. Um, you know, I just like, I don't know. I guess what I'm trying to say is like, we, we, we have been through many things in this process and I'm really happy to finally both be out on the other side and proud of it. Here's what I will say about collaborating is that it <laughs> one is one thing amazing. <laughs> one thing. One thing is that it's very very good. And the other thing is truly that our rule for our friendship, which is that like neither of us is allowed to break down at the same moment, also comes in very handy here, you know, where it's like, okay, great. You're watching someone else grieve or be angry or be like excited about something that you have gone through the same feelings about but you go through it at different moments and I feel that for me that made me feel sane because I was like okay great yes these feelings I am watching them being mirrored so I love it big friendship it's not bad um do you do you want to take a minute and and like talk about our process and what's in it because I sort of realized that like we have said on the show that like obviously if you listen to the show you know we're writing a book together you know that the book is about friendship and about our friendship but I feel like now that it is 
about to be out in the world like it is in like the hospital receiving ward or whatever metaphor you want to use oh my god <laughs> you and the childbirth metaphors i don't think i can handle okay this. i'm obsessed with claiming this as a big moment for me a child-free person who has really celebrated a lot of my <laughs> friends like you know weddings and babies and things like that like i am really interested in owning this as a major life event hence the metaphor um <laughs> But I wonder if we could just maybe we maybe we should talk a little bit more about like the process and also what's in the book, because while we have like alluded to it and mentioned it a bunch, we really I don't know. I feel I feel like that is like our strongest pitch for the book is being like, listen, this is just how hard we worked on this thing. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. The process of writing this book. Also, not bad. Um, <laughs> wow. Is this my first like uh, interview pitch situation? Probably for this. What's your okay, book about, so the- Amina Tuso? <laughs> wow. Thank you so much for asking, Anne Friedman. Um, the book I wrote with you is a memoir um, about our friendship. We have been friends for 10 years. In the book, we talk about us, the ups, the downs, the beautiful stuff, the like, you know, the drama of it all. And um, we also talk to experts and some of our friends and really try to get to the bottom of what it takes to um, stay friends with someone for the long haul. Wait, record scratch, the drama of it all. I thought you, uh, sorry, I thought we had a really perfect relationship with no problems or strife ever, like because we host a podcast together and are very public big friends. Let me hit you with a two by four of truth, Anne Friedman. (laughs) We, like all very healthy and good relationship, we have had ups and downs. We're very good about talking about the ups of our relationship, this podcast being one of them, all of the fun things that we do, the ways that we really show up for each other. We have also really struggled to talk about all of the ways that our friendship has been challenged. And it's not because we're hiding those things. It's because um, it's hard to talk about. We are two very different people who process things in our own way. And we've had to we've had to work through a lot of stuff. And the thing about the book and writing it that made me really happy, honestly, and talking to a lot of the experts that we did and to a lot of our friends was that all of the issues that we have are the same issues that everyone else has. And all of the joys that we have are the same joys that other people get from their friendships. So we are not unique snowflakes. In fact, we are um, very normal um, people who just love each other. Oh, and normal people who love each other do some like kind of like terrible things to each other in the course of living, I think is like also one of the lessons. I'm just like, you can't love someone without also disappointing them sometimes and being disappointed yourself wow i mean not too so she will disappoint you sometimes i should put that on my business and friedman she has already disappointed you <laughs> like that's that is really <laughs> you are probably already processing the fact that she has disappointed you one thing i wanted to say and this is like a, a no brag but kind of a brag is that one of the early readers of our book commented to me that she she really struggled to think of another story she had read that felt really honest and open and um, kind of taking you through the emotional steps of something that was not about trauma. That was really more about a kind of, frankly, like every day or like something that like everyone can expect to happen in the course of their lives. And I have been thinking about that a lot because I think as we set out to figure out how to tell our story, which, you know, like the difficult parts of our friendship are not really like 
something you could easily film with a camera. It's not like one of us said one horrible damning thing to the other or did something like one giant transgressive act. It was like, you know, much more of like an emotional distancing, a bunch of little things that added up. And um, it, that made it really difficult for us, I think, to not to justify the 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 need to write a book about it, but almost like to explain how big it felt, right? Like when there's not one big thing to show, it's like, it can, it can feel really hard to explain how high the stakes felt. And when she made that comment to me, it felt, it felt really, really good. Like, I feel like our contribution being, I'm, I'm getting a little emotional. Our contribution being like, this is the tough everyday stuff. And even if it doesn't feel like, you know, an earthquake or, you know, a bomb going off or whatever other big metaphor you want to use, it can still be a huge problem for your relationship and something you have to deal with. Like, I don't know. I feel really good about our attempts to, to get our heads and our hearts and our words around that. Aw, Anne Friedman, I am so proud of you. <laughs> I'm so proud of you. Oh my gosh. I have to tell everyone listening to this that like, oh, no. that I, I truly like, you know, throughout this process, you being like, well, I don't really know what I'm doing or like, I don't really know how to write or whatever you would say to downplay yourself. Like you are truly, truly one of my favorite writers. And like some of the things you came out with, I mean, you know that I have my favorite lines of yours that I have just clung to like driftwood oh, as I man, float in the ocean. Don't make me cry. Um, but you are tru truly one of my faves. And like, honestly, like one of the great things about working on this together is just being like, oh, I get to like look under the hood of how that brain works in a really new way, like very different than hosting this podcast. You know, like I feel, I don't know, I feel really lucky to have had that experience. You know, it's really funny hearing you say that because I think that there is something about the way that we record this show, maybe because it's like we do it, you know, it's like, we're each always in our own space. All you hear is my voice as we work through this. There is something about like sitting in a room writing next to you that always made me feel overexposed. You know, as like, <laughs> she is going to know how much I struggle to socially distance myself from snacks whenever I have to write. She is going to see all of the like the gnarly process of how it is that I get my brain around processing from inside the brain to getting it on the keyboard there was just something about like working in the same room as someone else uh because you know all of my coworkers are virtual that I think that was always really tough for me but then also realizing like oh yeah I work with someone that I love so honestly it doesn't matter that she's seen me wear this like same pair of pajamas five days in a row um the, the reused <laughs> looks during this book process were yes that was a real thing <laughs> shout out to our tie our matching tie-dye shirts made um by Ryan mm -hmm. it's funny that like for two people who have worked together for as long as we did that there was like there was new information that I learned about the way that we work with each other from doing a completely different kind of project so that made me really happy. I was like, wow, every relationship can still be spiced up. I love it. <laughs> well, and it's just, it's hard to overstate how much more intense writing this book was than doing this podcast is. Like, it's it was just like, for me at least, like leaps and bounds more intense than the oh, work we do. The podcast is a joke compared to writing, it turns out. And not, and to be clear, doing the podcast is hard, you know? Right. So... 
as a person who really deeply enjoys your brain and loves to i love everything that you make i felt really lucky to be able to make one more thing with you oh me too and it's one reason why i am just like so happy even if everyone hates this book i'm like well we have it for us like i feel selfishly like it's like so happy to even just like like the fact that this exists as a thing that you and i get to own and hold like Truly, even if everyone else hates it, like, I will still feel good about that. You know, I, like I said, it's not bad. So <laughs> I feel... <laughs> That's the pre-order. Pre-order this book, colon. It's not that bad. <laughs> I have this thing where I still have to take a lot of medicine from being sick every morning. And the other day, there was a variation in a medicine that I take. And usually, it truly tastes like death all the time. And this time, whatever, like, flavor it was, was not so awful. I took it and I was like, man, staying alive, not so bad. <laughs> if you're a podcast listener or you're someone who knows us or you just, like, are thirsty about information about us, I think that there's going to be enough for, to, like, satisfy your thirst in there. You know, there's a lot of, like, juicy bits. If you are, like us, social science nerds, I think that you will be really pleased with some of the science and the pop psychology stuff of it all. All of the parts of this podcast that I really enjoy doing, the talking about the high and the low and how, you know, like, we can go seamlessly from Kardashians into, like, a stimulus package conversation – all of that is translated <laughs> somewhere in this book. Not to toot my own horn, but I believe we do that very well. If you are someone who like doesn't know us at all and you hate how we sound on this podcast and you're still hate listening, I feel so sorry for you because the book will be just like that. But please pre-order Boo Boo. Your friend will love it. We really try to make it into the most like us book in the world. It is not just a memoir. It's not just, you know, like some hefty, serious nonfiction it is it really like blends a lot of our favorite things and truly I think that one of the one of the things that we try to do that <laughs> turns out was the hardest thing to do but I'm really glad that we did it is tell the book in one voice because we were really trying to work through what it means to share a life with someone in this way and so it's not one of those like alternating voices kind of books or, you know, like one person telling you about what they're experiencing, we really try to do it together. And I think that we arrive at some really, you know, some really interesting like joint truths. And also, I'm just like excited for a lot of people to take that information and start having conversations in a lot of their friendships. Because the thing that I was the most fascinated by when we were writing this book is that every single person that we talked to had a thing that they said that like it just like lit my brain on fire and I was like oh these are always all conversations that I am having alone or I'm having with my therapist or you know I just have a lot of either complete inability to talk through my feelings because I'm an emotional idiot or also I have a lot of shame about having strife in a lot of my relationships and so knowing that so many other people had you know like similar things or figuring it out um, it made me excited because for as much as we celebrate friendship on the show and a lot of people say that friendship is important on a real society level, we don't provide a lot of support for um, people shouting about how important their friendships are. And so in order to glean how other people are doing friendship, it was important that we told the world how we did our friendship. But I am really, really, really excited to know what other people are doing because I think that being really transparent about how you live and how you love is a transformative act. 
Yeah, and I think it's been interesting for me since having written this with you to think about or to like actively bring up with my other friends, like if we had to write a joint narrative of this period in our friendship or like of our friendship overall, how would we both talk about it? Like what would we describe as the hardest moments when our friendship with cha- was challenged? What would we identify as points where we bo- each felt really isolated and alone and like the other person had left us standing in the void that used to be the friendship. I mean, one thing about, um, and also like what would we identify as highlights and the things that like really kept us going through difficult periods, like things that we called back to in our minds. And I don't know. I think that um, the joint narrative thing really forced you and me to be like, oh, I can't just say like, yeah, yeah, this is my version of events. Like we really had to talk about like, okay, at the time you were feeling this, what was happening for me? And can we line up our timelines? And I don't know, I've been thinking a lot about like, what if, what if I applied that exercise to other relationships in my life? And what if I examined other friendships to the degree that you and I have examined ours? And like, that is also to me, not like I'm going to set out to do that tomorrow because that feels like a lifetime's worth of work. (laughs) But, (laughs) but, you know, just like, I think that like, when you say like, I'm excited to hear about how other people do friendship, like that's part of how I think of it, you know, like how, how would you, lots of other friends tell the narrative of their friendship. And so, you know, my my greatest hope for this book is that um, people are not like just wondering why we did the stupid things we did because we do a lot of stupid things in this book, frankly. But but that they are like, oh, I wonder when, you know, I was feeling this way in one of my own friendships, what was happening for this other person I'm close to. So it is a real cocktail of emotions. Um, I wanted to also, because I am a process nerd, I wanted to also tell listeners a little bit about how we wrote this in one narrative, because I think it's also like, I have never talked to anyone who had a similar process, which is that we talked a lot about what we wanted in the book. We made like a really pretty detailed joint outline of what we, of kind of how we thought the chapter would go or the section would go. And then we parted ways, like either, you know, in our separate homes on separate coasts or like, you know, to separate rooms if we were working in the same place and each wrote a certain number of words to that part of the outline. And then we would read aloud to each other what we had each written. And then we would knit together the two passages, which is to say we would pick the best parts from both of ours and get rid of a few things or expand on other things. And then we would move on to the next part of the outline and do it again. And that is how we wrote like, what, 70,000 words, 65,000 words. That blows my mind. When I describe that process, I'm like, who are these girls? Like, what are they doing? (laughs) (laughs) I just know that I remember like one one of the like very last writing days that we had where I looked at you and you said something like, wow, we really did this the hardest way. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I'm so glad that you're realizing this on like day 100 and not on day two. So let's keep at it. Um, Okay, I know this has gone on for so long. Part of me is like, what do we do now? I know. Well, I mean, it's so self-indulgent, but you know what? Like, please buy our book or tell someone about it. Yes. Like we want you to pre-order this book and we also want you to pre-order it and gift it to a friend. However, there's like, there are many other things you can do to support all of the time and energy we put into this book. You can request it from your local library. Like we would love every library in the world to carry a copy of this book. 
you can follow us and talk about the book and promote it. We are on Instagram at Big Friendship Book, which I think is probably our most active space. And you can go to our website, bigfriendship.com, which has all of the links to all of this stuff. Having like the money to pre-order a million copies right now is not the only way to, to help us. And also, if you are making a purchase, it would really mean the world to us if you ordered it from your local indie bookstore. We are really making a concerted effort on the show right now to promote other, um, you know, like other authors whose book tour schedules have been disrupted. And, um, you know, the reality of that is that booksellers' businesses are also being really disrupted. And one way to be really helpful in the pandemic is to support small local business. And so this is win, win, win all around. Support authors that need the support and support the bookstores that need the money also. Okay, so let's take a quick break and then we will talk about someone else for a change. I call your girlfriend. I love you guys. Uh, this is Emma Straub, author and owner of Books Are Magic in Brooklyn. And I am calling in to let you know what you can do to support authors and bookstores right now in this crazy world. Um, go ahead and order books from them. <laughs> That's the number one thing. But keep in mind that a lot of bookstores are either shipping from warehouses or running with a real skeleton crew at the moment. So there are things that you can order that are actually even better for them right this second. Those are pre-orders. You can order books that are coming out you know, in the next few months. Um, I'll give you a little list <laughs> at the end. You can order gift certificates. You can order subscriptions or uh, join a membership program. Lots of bookstores have both of those things. And that is a great way to give the bookstore money right now. And they don't have to send you anything in the mail immediately. You can also buy audiobooks with Libro FM. That's the indie-friendly audiobook company that many, many of us use. You can also buy ebooks through a company called Kobo. Those are all great things you can do to support bookstores right now continue you know liking their pictures on social media interacting with them in that way because I know for me bookstores are really about community more than commerce so so if you can stay engaged with them they will really appreciate it as for authors a lot of events right now are moving onto zoom like probably everything else in your life stay up to date and if there's someone whose event you would have gone to at the bookstore Go to their event on Zoom, ask a question in the comments, especially for emerging authors, you know, who haven't really found an audience yet or who don't have a big audience. Um, they will notice and appreciate if you show up for them in this really, really, really confusing, scary moment. If you don't have an independent bookstore that you love personally, um, but still 
sort of like the idea of them and <laughs> want to support them generally. There's a place called bookshop.org, which gives some of its money back to independent bookstores, all the independent bookstores who have signed up. Uh, so that is a great uh, website to check out. And then last thing, just a few books that I think CYG listeners would like. These are all books that either are coming out right now or in the next couple of months. So these are all books that are great to order or pre-order through the independent bookstore of your choice. Hex by Rebecca Dinerstein knight Godshot by Chelsea Beaker. Always Home by Fanny Singer. How Much of These Hills is Gold by C. Pam Zhang. Wow No Thank You by Samantha Irby. And I am not too proud to add All Adults Here by me, Emma Straub, to that list. It's a weird time. It's a weird time <laughs> to, to, to run an independent bookstore or a small business or, you know, to be a human. So um, on behalf of all independent bookstores and all authors, um, I say thank you for anything you can do to support. All right. Peace and love. Thanks, everybody. For this week's episode, I spoke to a writer who I really, really, really appreciate named Adeline Diodonné. She lives in Brussels, Belgium, and wrote this book that um, is really, really, really popular in in the French-speaking world and just got translated into English. And I was really, really excited to read it in English again. And so it's the story about this young girl and her very, 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 very dysfunctional family who um, live essentially in a house of horrors. The narrator is unnamed. She's afraid of her father, who's a big game hunter. Her mother and her have a really awful relationship. And she really, really, really loves her young brother. And so her and her brother go through this... um, Her and her brother like witness a tragedy in their home and then their lives has changed forever. So I won't tell you more than that, but it's a book about a narrator that's convinced that she's living in an alternate reality. It is both incredibly sad and disturbing, but tender and really funny in parts. And I really enjoyed it as a novel. It's called Real Life. And here is Adeline. My name is Adeline Giudonnet, and my book is called Real Life. Real Life addresses all, you know, themes of dying and coming of age and just this, you know, I think a thing that is really familiar to a lot of people, damaging family relationships. And the person who tells the story in real life is never named. Why did you choose to keep her nameless when you were telling the story? Um, I... I don't know. Um, at, at first, the first version of real life, I wrote it without thinking of that. And uh, and when I had the first version of the manuscript, uh, the little girl, her name was uh, told one time in the in the book, maybe because uh, she's speaking at the first first person. So usually we we don't say uh, our our own name. I, yeah, I saw it was uh, only told one time, so I decided to, to remove it. Maybe because I wanted the, the character to be more universal or something like that. Yeah, could you talk a little bit more about um, the relationship between the heroine and her mother? 
I, uh, <laughs> that's a complicated relationship. Uh, at first, um, in the beginning of the book, she's uh, the little girl. I think she's angry with her mother because the, the mother doesn't protect her children. It's a family where the father is very uh, violent and he beats the mom. And, um, yeah, and the mother, she quit uh, the, the job of uh, being a mother for, for her kids. So the little girl is angry with that. Um, but when she's growing up uh, along the book, uh, she realized that uh, maybe it's a more complex and her mother uh, she calls her uh, an amoeba uh, in the beginning of the book because she thinks she doesn't exist uh, she realized maybe she's more than that and she finds some kind of um, sisterhood with her and uh, the relationships uh, has a positive evolution the way that you tease out this bond between the mother and the daughter and it's very mm -hmm. much um, you see you see that their relationship changes because they become um, aligned against their misogynist father. And so I'm just wondering, like, why it was so important for you to write about that, um, you know, that relationship specifically. Mm. I don't know. It sounds uh, logical because the little girl she she wants to escape. Uh, uh, kind of a determinism because her father wants her to become like her mother uh, and uh, uh, so uh, a, a woman without uh, any own existence and who is just uh, uh, staying at home and uh, cooking and so on. And yeah, she wants something else. She wants to become uh, someone else. And yeah, I, I think I was wondering about uh, transmission, how we can uh, escape our condition, how we can uh, uh, become different. And I think today it's a big question about feminism, how not to reproduce something that uh, exists for so many years, so many, yeah, so long. And I think Without to, to realize that when I was uh, writing, I think that's uh, something that was surrounding me. Uh, mm. uh, those questions were very important for me. Yeah, you know, another big theme of the book, honestly, is death and just how present it is. You have these two kind of young children characters who see death every day in, in their father's trophy room. They're, you know, like big stuffed carcasses of like game animals. They witness this really violent incidence. And mm -hmm. so I'm just really curious if you can talk a little bit about, you know, what the relationship to death is, um, in the book for all the characters. Yeah, um, at the beginning of the story, the two little kids uh, see someone dying uh, right before their eyes. They realize how uh, fragile they are, uh, their own vulnerability, how death and, and suffering are never far away. I think we all uh, experience that one day or another, the dark side of life, 
And how how do we live with that? Most of all, when you are a child and your parents are not uh, supportive at all, uh, how do you find a way to create some light in that darkness? And yeah, you have the stuffed stuffed carcasses of the trophy room. It takes another color when you when you think of that. Um, the little girl realized they were real living animals before. Of course, she, she knew it somehow, but now she really sees them as dead bodies. So, yeah, I, I wanted to explore that, the, the relationship between children and death. Mm. You know, so much of the book also for, you know, all of these big kind of the darkness that surrounds it, there is a real sense of humor to a mm-hmm. lot of the stories. And so I'm always so fascinated by people who can write about really, really dark things in a funny way or even just write in a funny way because humor is so, I think it's hard to write. Did it just like happen as you were writing it or did you, you know, you kind of had a sense from the beginning that you wanted it to have a, like an edge of humor? Mm, no, it was uh, very instinctive. The, the voice of the little girl, she, yeah, she has that... Uh, that gaze on her family and yeah sometimes it's funny because she's a child and uh, she has a a cruel gaze and uh, the the way she analyzes uh, everything around her uh, is sometimes very funny because she's very uh, critic about that and uh, I, I don't know if I did it on purpose. I think it's just because when I'm writing, I, I need to have fun for myself. Yeah, I, I think the first person I wanted to make laugh is, is myself. So uh, I, I did that way. And yeah, I think if I didn't put some humor in that story, it would have been very suffocating. It's difficult to... to talk about death without without humor. I love that. I read the book in, in French before reading it in English, and I'm always so fascinated by translations because the translator has such an important role in, in telling the story again in a language and making it seem, you know, both accurate to, to what it is that you were saying, but also I think imbuing it with a sense of understanding for a new audience in a new language. And so I would love if you could talk about the process of translating this book, whether how involved you were and also what your thoughts are about the book in, and how it's being received in the U.S. Um, for now, the book is translated in 20 languages. So the process is different in every every language. For the the, the US uh, translation, I had the privilege to work with Roland Glasser, the translator. He asked me uh, a lot when he was uh, working. We had uh, a lot of uh, contacts, and he sent me a lot of questions by email and. It was fascinating for me because I, I had access to his sensitivity. I loved it. It was like if I gave my child <laughs> to someone else oh. and seeing that <laughs> he was very careful and 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 loving with her and uh, uh, knowing she was in in good hands. Uh, it was uh, very moving for me. 
So I love that, that process. That makes me really happy. And uh, I just want to say congratulations on the success of the book. I am really excited for our audience to read it and to also respond to it. So I hope that you have a wonderful rest of your day. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I hope that quarantine goes a little bit easier on your side of the world. Yeah, and uh, I, I hope it's, uh, it's okay on your side. And, um, and take care. Take care of you. You too. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a lot. Who did you speak to for this week's episode? I interviewed a YA novelist named Ashley Woodfolk about her book, When You Were Everything, which on the same tip as our conversation earlier this episode about our friendship is about a friendship between two teen girls that implodes. And it's written in this kind of like before and after flashing back and forth to the period when they're really close and then the period when they are no longer friends. And that alone made me want to read this book because I feel like that is a really tempting way to think about any relationship that goes sour, you know, like the the kind of like the good times and the like, oh, now that things are bad or things have fallen apart. And so she um, she writes the book from the perspective of one of the girls, Cleo, who is sort of a classic like teen friend breakup story where Layla, her friend, kind of falls in with a different friend group and Cleo feels left behind. And, you know, even though they both probably have different versions of what happened to the friendship. It's really firmly rooted in Cleo's point of view. And I just felt, I don't know, I felt such warmth for these girls that she writes. And also, I was really struck thinking about how, yes, like high school is this singular experience where you are kind of trapped socially with people, no matter what happens in your you know, relationship, you kind of have to keep showing up to the same building every day. And how that, even though it's many of the same dynamics that play out in adult relationships, that makes everything so much more heightened and intense. Because yes, there's this before and after timeline, but the after is never really after in the way it is for adults. So here I am with Ashley Woodfolk. Ashley, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for reaching out to me. I'm excited to be here. So I wonder if you could start by talking a bit about why you wanted to write a novel about the end of a friendship. I feel like we very much in our culture value romantic relationships over friendships um, as a whole. And so that was the main reason why I wanted to write it. It was it was something that had happened to me so many times, but something that I had never um, read a story about. Right. And I know your novel is technically a YA novel. I mean, I know friendship breakups are not exclusive to teens. When you think about your own experiences, is there is there one that really stands out as having shaped this story in particular? Probably my very first one that happened. um, The first friendship breakup that I experienced was when I was in middle school. My best friend at the time was a girl who went to the same church as me. And she uh, was a year older. And so when she, well, so I was technically still in elementary school, I guess. So I was like 11 and she turned 12 before me and, you know, moved on to middle school. And she just sort of, I guess, dismissed me in a way, like sort of started treating me like I was a baby. And, you know, she had this cool new friend who was in the eighth grade (laughs) that she was hanging out (laughs) with. (laughs) And she started wearing makeup 
like nothing crazy because we were like 13, you know, 12 and 13. She started doing all these things that I wasn't personally ready for and I wasn't necessarily interested in, I guess. And so that is sort of the heart of when you were everything that her best friend, the main character's best friend, Layla, falls in with this new group of kids and she sort of starts to change. So I think emotionally that first friendship breakup definitely inspired the story, but then um, some of the awful things that happen that they do to each other to sort of completely break the friendship are similar to things that happened to me when I was older. Yeah, and one of the things that I think is so interesting about this book is the way that your characters, Layla and Cleo, like can't really get away from each other. And I think that in a way, this is specific to like a high school friend breakup, not entirely, but um, the fact that they, they have had this like rift and then through circumstance, they still have to be in proximity to each other. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little more. I think this is one of the many reasons why friendship breakups are so much more difficult than romantic um, breakups. Sometimes, obviously, there are exceptions to that rule. But but generally, if if you have an ex that you don't want to see, you don't have to see them. I think with friendship, especially when you're younger, um, but I think this is true even you know if you're an adult. A lot of times, if you if it's um, one, you have a friend break up with one friend in a friend group. You're both still friends with everyone else in the friend group. So it's like you can't escape that person in the same way that you can escape. Um, a romantic partner. And when I was writing the book, I wanted to sort of toy with what if you had this enemy and you literally could not get away with get away from them. And I think that that creates a really interesting dynamic because not only are you faced with, you know, potentially the person who hurt you, but you're also faced with all of the things you did that hurt that person. And you sort of have to grapple with it regularly instead of just dismissing it or forgetting about it or ignoring it. Right. And you know, your yeah. book your book is divided into these now and then timelines, you know, the sort of yeah. like when the friendship's good and then when the friendship is non-existent anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering about that choice and why you chose to, to do the book that way. I knew that I wanted to do a dual timeline from the very beginning, but it took a very long time to actually pull it off. <laughs> um, like in the revision process, it was it was a nightmare. The main reason why I wanted to do that was to make the reader more compelled to want to figure out what went wrong. Because so often in these friendships, it's not one thing. But in my experience, most friendship breakups, you do have usually that one big blowout fight or that one moment where you're just like, you know, screw this person. I don't want to talk to them ever again. But there are all these little moments, usually, that build on top of each other until you get to a breaking point where you're like, okay, I really can't do this anymore. You have the first tiny betrayal and then the the next one that's a little bit bigger. And it only feels bigger because of the first one, right? Mm. And they all sort of build on each other until you get to the point where you're like, oh, you know, F this B. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm done here. And yeah, so I thought doing the, the dual timeline in that way would, one, allow the reader to become more invested in their friendship because you're able to see when it was good and, and how these girls relied on each other and how they were there for each other and, and what made their friendship work. Um, And then you were sort of able to see it slowly fall apart. You know, it's interesting to me because I think so many friendship stories are 
um, are told from the perspective of one friend or the other, you know, and I found myself wondering while reading your book um, about like, what would the version of this novel from Layla's perspective read like, or what would, you yeah. know, how would she characterize um, everything what, that happened what between happening? them? Yeah. yeah. Um, no, that's actually a really interesting point. I am more, I have always been the Cleo in, <laughs> in all of my friendship breakups. Like I was the one who sort of felt left behind, who sort of made the narrative read as if I was the victim, even when I had done bad things too. Um, and so that was an easier perspective for me to write from. And also I feel like a lot of the books I write, I'm writing for like my younger self and my younger self would have never been Layla. Like I could, I could see myself being Layla now, but high school Ashley would have never been Layla. High school Ashley was 100% Cleo, like, like things to stay where they were and liked people to stay exactly the way that they were and hated change. I think often in these situations, everything feels so one-sided. It feels like the other person is being ridiculous. Um, <laughs> even when things like first sort of start to go wrong between them, Layla isn't actually doing anything wrong. Like there's nothing wrong with wanting to make new friends or wanting to make additional friends. There's nothing inherently wrong in that. And I'm able to see that now, <laughs> <laughs> but I was not able to see that then. Yeah. Um, so do you think that there are parts of their story that are specific to high school or do they feel like, does this dynamic feel true to adult life to you too? I think the part that the parts that are specific to high school are the parts where you are physically forced, they are physically forced to share space. As a kid, you don't really have an option to leave school. You can beg your parents to transfer you, but also you don't want to leave all of your other friends. Um, so I think that part of it is definitely the, the feeling of being stuck is definitely very specific to being a teenager, or being a kid. But I think the the emotional landscape of the story, the the feelings of losing someone, the feelings of being left behind, the feeling of being a little lost without a person that you had sort of anchored your existence on. I think all of that can definitely translate to to being an adult. There, One of the epigraphs at the beginning of your book is a Shakespeare quote that reads, mm -hmm. the band that seems to tie their friendship together will be the strangler of their amity. And yeah. I'm wondering if you could talk about why you chose it. In the novel, Cleo is super obsessed with Shakespeare. That said, that quote specifically made me think about a lot of my friendships that have fallen apart. I think that people tend to come together because they see in someone else something that they lack. Um, what is the source of, of, of attraction for friends, for romantic um, partners as well, tends to also end up being the main source of tension and the main source of conflict. And so, you know, I think Layla is attracted to Cleo because Cleo feels safe. And I think Cleo is attracted to Layla because Layla is brave. And then, and, and outgoing. And ultimately, those things both break down for both of them. Um, you know, Layla is outgoing, so she wants to make new friends. And, and that is exactly what causes the beginning of their conflict. And then, you know, Cleo being this safe space for Layla, that goes away because Cleo betrays her. The reasons that they came together and became friends are the reasons that they are not friends anymore. 
Um, and I think that that's true in a lot of in a lot of relationships. Last question, I want to ask you about the dedication of, you know, to all the girls who broke my heart. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder if you picture them reading this book and what you hope they'll take from it. Um, there have been friends that I never got the chance to apologize to. There have been friends that I did awful things to and just like never spoke to them again. And there have been friends that I apologized, but we couldn't fix it. So I guess if, if one of my ex friends, you know, read that dedication, um, I would want, and, and read the book, I would want them to see that even though, you know, some bad stuff happened between us, ultimately I still respect them. I still love them. I still think that our friendship happened for a reason and that there's value there. And ultimately, like, I still miss all of these people, you know, um, to not have that person around anymore. I think your life is is definitely lacking, like, in a way, like, you're okay. And, um, and everything will be fine. And you'll make new friends. But there's still like, a hole in your life that is the particular shape of that person. And no one else can ever fit there even though I was a bitch, like, <laughs> or even, even though they were to me, um, ultimately I still wish that things had been at least more civil, if not, if the friendship couldn't have, uh, have lasted longer. Ashley, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm excited to read this. This is great. Thanks, Anne. Whew, so many, so many books to read. Thank you, listeners, for hanging in with all of our books content. Because, I mean, I guess like there are worse times to talk about books. Let's be real. Listen, you know how I feel about reading. <laughs> it's very important and it's very essential. And I really have to say that in this moment, even though a lot of people are saying that they have more time to read, I really feel that that is a luxury and a privilege that I can't forget because so many people that we know right now do not have the luxury or the time to read because we are not working from home. We are at home because of a crisis. Right. So if you do have the luxury, enjoy it. If you don't, these books will be waiting for you. If it- 